Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Dave McQueen. He is a leadership coach and the co-founder of Q Squared. Dave, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Great to be here. Excellent. Would you mind giving everyone 60 seconds on your background and your journey thus far? Okay. So parents from Barbados and Grenada, they are Caribbean expats who landed over here in Britain in the 60s. I am the second of three boys. I uh, was born in St. Mary's Hospital Paddington in Northwest London, the same hospital that Prince Harry and William were born in, and that's where the similarities end. I'm the husband of one, the father of two, the friend of many. I am a provocateur in that I like to live life on the edge and really challenging people in my business and in my life to live their best life. Excellent. So we're going to make people uncomfortable today. That's our commitment. So buckle up if you're listening. Okay, so today's conversation is going to be around leadership, communication, how you can take those skills into your broader life, into the community, into family. So let's start by defining what you see as leadership being. So for me, leadership is about being able to recognize from a group of people how you can really help them to get to their best potential. And if you're the individual that's tasked with leading them to that space, being able to empower them to be able to go on that journey on, on, uh, to go on that journey with you in order to be able to realize their full potential. Okay, so if it's about empowerment, mm-hmm. helping to meet their full potential, what are the bots jobs that crap leaders tend to in, uh, inflict on their teams and their people? I think the first thing, actually, is that a lot of people think it's just about them. I, I can't remember the, um, uh, the, the philosopher, one of those philosophers from somewhere, who, who said, you know, when you do a, if you do a really good job, uh, people will be able to celebrate it without even having to say anything to you because you've empowered them so much that they've gone on that journey that they don't even have to say thank you to you for being able to do it. They recognize, yeah, you've done it, but they're just getting on with it. And I really love that. But a lot of leaders just think it's about them. It's great that you are there to be able to serve people, but it's not about accolades and awards and what have you. It's about being able to recognize that you were given an opportunity to take people on this journey with you. And I think a lot of people get it twisted and they think it's about their ego, think it's about the rewards they get and what have you. But I always say, if you really want to judge a really good leader and understand where they are, ask the people who they're leading. That's when you'll actually know. Um, uh, yeah. Did you want me to continue with more or you want to, let's yeah. bounce on that going. I see, I see you want to bounce back on that one. Go well, ahead. It strikes me that great leaders, mm-hmm. uh, and I can't remember where I read this, but great leaders create more leaders. Yes. They're not about creating followers. They're not about creating a, uh, the cult of me. And one of the problems that I see very often is that leaders, have, bad leaders, have a sense of entitlement. They think it's about status, about title, and they have more of a command and control type of approach. Yeah. And when you've seen the best leaders, what are the qualities, that, what are the red threads that run through them? So for me, they're trusted. That's, what's one, I think that's one of the key ones. There's no way you're going to be a leader if people don't trust you. And so individuals have got to be able to trust that you're going to take them on that journey or take them into that space. If you have that vision, they're going to, they're going to be able to see that. The second one for me is that you have to have a vision. You have to have a really clear idea of where it is you're going and where you're intending to take people. Often people assume that people know straight away. I think as a leader, you have to be very clear cut about where you're taking people into that space. I also think you have to be quite bold and you have to be quite willing to take on a lot of challenges that other people may not on behalf of the people that you're, you're serving. And the fourth one for me is around resilience. You've got to be quite strong and you've got to be able to be quite resilient. And those things for me are quite 
resin across the board. That first bit for me is trust. If no one trusts you, there's absolutely no way you're going to have that sense of good leadership. So those are the ones that really jump out for me. I would add to that. I think the best leaders are vulnerable and therefore courageous, which means that they need to invite criticism and they need to create a safe environment so that people have potency, they have permission to speak their mind and have a voice, and they need to know that they can trust you to protect them when they do give that honest, unvarnished, unfiltered, and sometimes brutal feedback, because it comes from a place where you all want to improve and you raise you know, raise the bar. I mean, there, there are two conflicting proverbs that come to mind. Uh, one is a rising tide raises all boats. Yes. And uh, the other one is that when the tide goes out, you get to see who's been swimming naked. I think too often bad leaders are waiting for the tide to go out rather than encouraging it uh, to come in. So let's talk about that subject of inclusiveness uh, because inclusivity, to my mind, and again, you may have a different definition, is where people have the right to speak their mind, where their opinion matters and where they feel that uh, having a voice empowers them. So I'm curious about how you define inclusivity. So I see it slightly differently. I see inclusivity as the creating a space for people to be, um, you know, under your leadership, creating a space for that individual to feel that regardless of what characteristics or experience or ability that they've had in the past, that what they bring to the table now is valid. I agree with you in to the extent that, yes, I think people should be able to have that agency and that space to be able to raise their points and be able to get people to understand where they're coming from. I'm always of the opinion that you're, <laughs> I'm of the position that your voice is valid, but it's not necessarily valid, or vital, should I say. We don't <laughs> always have to hear it, all right? <laughs> Definitely valid, but not always vital, you know? So there are going to be times as a, as a leader where you're going to have to choose which battles you wish to fight and, and, and what you're going to focus on. The inclusion piece for me is that if I walk through the door, for example, in an organization, and I come and I be, I'm a part of that culture, a really good leader for me makes me feel that I'm part and parcel of that culture without having to second guess, am I good enough because of, because of my class? Am I good enough because of my education? Am I good enough because of my ethnicity or my gender or my sexuality? For me, that inclusion piece takes the the volume on those internal dialogues and in those internal conversations I may have and turn it right down because the leader is one who promotes values and behaviors and and, and rituals that allow me to push that to the side and focus and go, right, I, I feel part of the team. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we, you know, kumbaya and we're going to be happy all the time, but I at the front of my mind shouldn't be this thing like, oh my God, am I good enough to be here? This opens up a whole wondrous can of worms. So yes. I'm excited by this. Open them up. I love worms. Go yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so um, there are plenty of baited hooks in that uh, <laughs> uh, section. If we think about diversity, yes, both of us are immigrants. Now, I grew up in the 1970s with a funny-sounding name. My mother's uh, accent was always commented on, but I'm white. You grew up slightly later than, uh, than me. And I think, anyway, you, you certainly... Earlier, earlier. 1969. 1969 I was born. Oh, right. Okay. Well, uh, only a couple of years. You, you just happen to be way better preserved than I am. <laughs> um, so 
at the same time, I don't really have a clear picture of what it was like to be black and British and then growing up through the 1970s, 80s, 90s, going into the world of work. I've always felt a little bit of an outsider and I never really felt included until maybe the last five to seven years. Mm. I've finally come to terms with uh, who I am. Um, But, you know, from what you were saying, where, you know, you're, you're looking over your shoulder wondering, you know, do I fit? Do I have the right to be here? Many organizations claim to want to be an equal opportunities employer. Yeah. Uh, they claim that they're going to uh, recruit a diverse team, but they tend to recruit in their own image, only weaker. They tend to recruit people just like them. They may be a different color or a different uh, gender, but if they've all read uh, PPE at Oxford, um, they're all going to have the same kind of mindset. The recruitment process, the panel, is not typically made up of diverse pe- uh, group of people. So what, what I'm curious about is the experience that you had, both growing up, but also entering the world of work, where the majority of the bosses were probably fusty, fat, old, balding white men, and how you managed to find your, pl- your place in all of that. Because that, that's a really curious challenge for people who don't come from there to even fathom and understand. So yeah, like yourself, um, a 1970s child um, and Northwest London. And there's an interesting thing here. I was really encouraged from quite a young age to read quite a lot and read about different cultures and backgrounds and geographies and experiences. My dad was really insistent on me being able to do that. And, And I feel in many ways that those books protected me because when I then was in, in school and I may have got challenged by a teacher or, or another student from a, from a different background, there was a, I, obviously, as, in addition to reading that book, I, I developed a really um, very dark sense of humor. So I thought if anyone was going to mess with me, <laughs> they were going to get the result of my tongue as well. Um, but what it meant was that in many instances, I was able to just take a step back. You know, I think of the, my first experience of going to Carnaby Street in the 70s, this wonderful place that I had heard of. And, you know, within an hour and a half of being down there, being chased down the road by dudes in braces and boots and shouting uh, the N-word at me and telling me to go back to my own country. And I'm like, well, my own country is Northwest London, you know. Oh, I'll, I'll leave Central London and I'll go to Northwest London if that makes you happy. But, you know, being in that, being, being in that environment was, whilst it's had its challenges, I think I was surrounded by, with a lot of people and conversations that, were quite protective and just allowed me to go, yeah, I know this stuff happens, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to take it on the chin. And going into the world of work, there were, my parents had the expectations for me to keep my head down and work hard, don't cause any trouble and just get on with stuff. But I'm just too hella curious. And so I would always ask questions. I would always challenge people. You know, there were sometimes that I had conversations with individuals who, you know, did make comments which could probably be seen in this day and age as, highly inappropriate and probably in some in some quarters quite racist but for me I always kind of like try to give people the benefit of the doubt until they prove me wrong so I would if somebody had asked me questions like back in the day when I had hair and somebody would say you know do you wash your hair do black people wash their hair and I'll be like yeah they do Uh, (laughs) you know they use head and shoulders you know um we actually used dark and lovely but she wasn't ready for that conversation um so for me you know it was about how do we use humor how do we stay in this space and and unless you're up against this wall of constant ignorance and willful ignorance, I would give people the benefit of the doubt and then obviously take the conversation forward from there. 
I had a really fascinating conversation with Kura John Warren, who is the Strategic Business Development Director for Rare Recruitment. Okay. And uh, they place uh, highly talented Bain candidates yeah. in law firms and uh, pre- uh, premium uh, employers uh, yes. in the city. And the point that she made, which was really interesting, was it's all well and good hiring these people. But if you can't create an environment where they stay, then first of all, it's a massive waste of money and a waste of talent. But secondly, it's incredibly destructive because my experience is definitely that the more diverse a team, the more successful they tend to be because they are able to see things through different lenses with uh, different perspectives and challenge one another and wipe out the blind spots that an entirely uh, homogenous or um, samey team is likely to fall into. So I'm curious about what advice you would give to leaders to ensure that they create a culture that not only attracts but retains diverse individuals. If I take it back a bit, because I think it's probably a sense to, to show where we are at now, and I think it was in 2010, I'm going to say, probably about 10 years ago, maybe slightly before, when the, one of the first race equality acts came out and employers were, as part of this larger conversation around inequality, employers were challenged to make sure that when they hired and put people in place that they reduce all these negativities around, you know, there, there have been incidences where I know that hiring managers and recruiters have told me that in finance, that they've been told Obviously, off the record, they won't have it on email or on a call because obviously they know they get sued to high heaven. But they've been told we you can't hire people from these areas. So like West Africa, they'll say don't hire them from Nigeria because they're all 419 scammers and they don't want this kind of stuff in their office. Or if they're um, from Eastern Europe, European Europe, they don't want somebody whose name they can't pronounce because they've got too many vowels. These are the kind of things that people have been told. Now, obviously, this act has been brought in place to combat this, even though it still happens. And what you found was a lot of diversity was shaped around compliance. So a lot of organizations, especially in these big firms that you talk about, they would be using diversity as a way to be able to protect the brand. So if somebody sued them for racial, gender, class, or whatever kind of discrimination, what they would do is they would have a provision in place to say, well, look, we we were applicable to the, the Race Equality Act or whatever kind of equality act they had there at the time. But what we will do is rather than have a big fight about that, let's give you £20,000 or £40,000. Let's settle this out of court because trying to take us to court, because we're bigger than you and we'll smash you to pieces, you might as well take the payment, go about your business your merry way, we'll write your statement and we're good to go. And historically, a lot of departments came from that space, whereas now there is a wider conversation. And obviously this year, as we're recording in 2020, you know, there's been a massive conversation because the whole world of work has changed, not only with the pandemic, but because of the awareness of race relations following the George Floyd death in America in um, in May of this year. And so my kind of advice that I give to individuals is, look, you're going to have to get uncomfortable with it. You're going to have to realize it's going to be a bit uncomfortable changes. So this is a global world you're dealing with. You know, I think of, a, of some of these really large tech companies or some of these global pharmaceutical or food companies, you're dealing with a global customer base. If you really want to be able to understand how you can get a competitive advantage and understand how you can lead teams into those space, understand the market you're dealing with. So hire somebody that looks like your customer 
or hire somebody in the in the areas that you work in that represent the actual demographic of the hiring space you're in and learn how to have those conversations rather than be going, right, I don't want to hire a woman because if I do and I say, hello, love, or hello, darling, she might go and sue me for sexual discrimination. Or if I say to a black guy, are you colored or are you Afro-Caribbean and somebody gets upset because you might have used the wrong character, I always go, look, have the conversation. Set it clear in your values. Set it clear in, in, in the way that you're shaping your culture and always have an open conversation, but don't run away from it because whilst you're ignoring it, all your competition are thinking about how can we engage with those customers that this client over here isn't doing. I recently had a conversation with Shelton Banks, and he runs a non-for-profit, again, placing African-American, highly talented people in sales roles. And uh, he used to be a VP at JP Morgan, and he made an observation when he was there. And it was a huge missed opportunity, which is what triggered him to set this organization up. And they would run marketing campaigns, and they'd run on the basis of zip codes and household income. Now, a lot of the uh, African-American community, first of all, don't trust banks. So a lot of their business is done through cash. The second is that the householder, maybe Grandpa Joe, age 73 with an annual income of nine grand. But he's got his three kids and a couple of grandchildren living with him. So between them, uh, they have a household income of a quarter of a million dollars. And he made the observation that uh, the African-American community alone constitutes $1.3 trillion of annual spending power. When you add Latinos and uh, Asians, that adds another, I think it's $3 trillion. Now, that's a shitload of money. And that blind spot is being driven by, first of all, ignorance, and also, secondly, lack of awareness. But uh, the the other thing is, I don't think uh, leadership and the marketing departments are asking the right questions. And so this then comes to the next really interesting point, which is, what are the questions that leaders should be asking themselves in order to create diverse, highly effective teams that are exceptionally engaged and are delivering discretionary effort. So it's such an interesting one about those those kind of what I call the unexpected questions, the the, the bits that a lot of individuals miss out on. And a lot of the questions are, for me, are things like, you know, what don't we know? That's an obvious question. What (laughs) don't we know? And that opens up a whole... Because, you know, you realize, you and I probably realize this because we're on the, the other side of, of, of the good side of, of late 40s and 50s, is that the older you get, the more you realize, and the even more older you get, the more you realize you don't know. So Absolutely. what don't you know? So what are the questions that we can, what don't we know? And what are the questions that we can ask? And how do you define that? Well, all the stuff you do know is in front of you. So what don't you know? And what are the areas that you think, oh, I'm, I'm not sure, go and ask your staff, go and ask your stakeholders, go and ask your customers. By having this kind of feedback loop about what you don't know, you ask, you ask people to understand, in other words, how can I serve you better? How can I be a better, um, uh, in terms of business, how can I serve you better? How can uh, a supplier, how can we work with you better? And stakeholders, how can I make sure that you're, the stakeholders you have in this, or the stakeholding you have in this organization, you get really good value? And often you won't know until you ask that question. So sometimes it's just asking that simple question. I also say that, the questions are, are simple questions that a lot of people don't ask, ask enough is, are you happy? 
Or are you happy with the service? Are you happy with what's happening here? And giving people the opportunity to be able to respond back. Because so many times people assume that, you know, there's all this customer delight and our users and customers absolutely love us. And look at this award we got and all these other bollocks that people pull out. But when you really ask people, they'll go, well, okay, this is cool, but, and then they'll add something else. So if you really want to know about those gaps, just ask people, you know, what is missing? Uh, Am I really serving you? Is this really working for you? And just ask those questions because you don't know. Just ask what you don't know. You, You should definitely check out a lady called Amy Brown. She's the CEO of a company called Authentics. So Authentic with a C-X at the end, dot com. Beauthentics.com. And they run an AI conversational listening process for uh, the US healthcare market. And they listen to 10 billion conversations a year. Wow. And before they run the AI, they have a team of very diverse social scientists filter the AI and filter the questions that they're going to uh, be asking uh, in order to eliminate bias and also to recognize bias when it comes in through the conversation. Because what they want is the raw, unfiltered, unbiased conversation between customer and the call center agents. And the horror on the faces of CMOs, CEOs, CFOs, when they hear these audio montages of what customers are saying. I mean, they do the good first, and then they do the not so good. And the blind spots, the total lack of awareness to how much money they are leaving on the table, how they are underserving or serving poorly their customers, how they're losing customers. I mean, in this day and age, where we're heading into probably the worst economic depression in history, we have the pandemic, Keeping hold of your customers is crucial. Yes. And if we are not listening, Salesforce is uh, coming out with some really interesting research on the 2nd of December. And I know this because they're launching it on my podcast. So I'm very grateful. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they've come up with a, an equation for customer success. Yeah. So yeah. customer success equals employee experience mm-hmm. plus the customer outcome divided by the customer experience. Now, what does that really mean? Well, if you're not looking at all of those moving parts, in particular, your employee experience, Mm. then chances are your customers will be on the receiving end of some pretty shit service. Yes. Or they will be blind to or deaf to what the customers are saying. And so... I do a load of work with uh, a partner of mine, a Gap in the Matrix, and uh, they seek to answer this fundamental question. Why do humans not understand other humans? Now, this is the perennial question, because I fundamentally believe that Mark Twain was right. When you understand the whole world is mad, everything makes sense. Yeah. That's a, a paraphrasing. And part of the problem here is that unless we make ourselves vulnerable enough, unless we are humble enough to put ourselves in a position where we say, you know, I don't understand, help me, then we're never really going to get past those blind spots, those attribution errors, those heuristics that uh, keep us uh, from getting to the truth. And I think a lot of leaders Mm -hmm. are terrified of the truth. They are, they are. It's interesting, 
the leadership behaviors or the framework for the leadership behaviors for the work that I do, again, whether it's in business or in the community or whatever, it's an acronym that I use called BRAVE. So it's bold, resilient, agile, visionary, and ethical. And to your point that you're saying, you know, there are there are lots of individuals who are tasked with, and I think this is one of the things that sets out leaders, is that they take time to think about the problems that are in front of them or the problems that may come. And then they start to think about what are the decision-making tools that we can have in front of us in order to be able to tackle those problems. Some might be wicked problems that may be just outside of the extent of the organization, but some may be some that can be solved within the organization. But you can't tackle that if you're not bold about it and if you're afraid about the risk, making a mistake and the response that comes back from it. You can't tackle it if you're not resilient, because if you're really feeble and you're just worried about how people will respond to you, um, you're always going to be second guessing. Uh, the agility to your point about being able to have this kind of data that comes in from these resources. And you get, again, as you said, there's all these people getting absolutely frightened about the response. Well, my thing is, is, if you're really thinking about agility, ask the damn question. Rather than just sitting down there thinking that everything is fine and you're just churning along, don't be afraid to ask the difficult questions. And again, to visionary, start to see not just what's happening in the immediate, um, uh, you know, the next five, 10 days or, or three months. We know, look, look nobody knows what's going to happen over the next year. We've got no idea, even if you bring in a vaccine, even if you, uh, you know, even if we have these consistent lockdowns, no one knows. We've never been in the history of our, in, in the history of our earth in a situation to deal with all these political, economic, climate, and the, the disease or the, or the pandemic situation. But I can tell you now, there are lots of leaders who are thinking, three years down the line, we need to be in place to have a sense of resilience of what may happen because things are going to change. And they've got futurists and they've got teams of economists and engineers who are thinking about all the different scenarios that can go forward. And I think the last one for me around ethical is, can the choices we make and the behaviors we take, are they going to be sustainable? Are they really going to be sustainable? So that brave... Um, that five-part BRAVE acronym that we use around leadership behaviors drives a lot of the coaching or drives a lot of the conversations and dialogues that we have, uh, you know, whether we're doing research, whether we're coaching senior leaders, whether we're working with small teams in the community, it's being able to go, let's have a BRAVE conversation about this. Don't focus so much on getting it wrong, because if you focus on getting it wrong, you're not going to start asking the questions. And for me, that's important. Let's be brave about that leadership behavior. This is really interesting. And very uh, timely. I, I've just come off a call. I'm working as part of a spearhead group developing a concept called territorial mapping. And it's been developed by a fascinating character who is mad as a box of frogs, Anthony Willoughby, good friend of mine. Absolutely fucking crazy. <laughs> the last 45 years living and working with the indigenous people in Papua New Guinea, on yeah. Mongolia and uh, the Maasai in Kenya. And with all of these indigenous people, one common thread is understanding their territory. Yes. And there is uh, quite a bit of uh, interesting research. In fact, uh, the Nobel Prize was won in 2010, specifically for uh, some research into how the brain has a GPS system. So territory is uh, you know, hardwired into us. And What's been really interesting about uh, going through this process is understanding the territory in which you, your team, your business, your customers are, and the creative process of mapping that out. And everybody understands what a river is, a mountain is, you know, what a lion is, and so forth. And so going through this process of mapping allows people to draw out 
Mm. Not only the problems, but most importantly, the solutions. And it allows people to tell, be honest and tell the truth. Now, it's a terrifying experience for people who are brittle. Yes. Um, it's invigorating uh, for people who see change happen positively as a result. But one of the things we've been discussing is, do you start with the solution and then work backwards from there? So I'd like to pose that question to you. When we're trying to tackle these issues, yes. do we define what the solution is first, or do we just let the bloodletting happen and then try and manage the, uh, that conflict? I like the combination of the two. I love to be able to let people loose, even if you know you've got a bit of a solution, let people loose and kind of like let them just whoa, just totally go and brainstorm and start thinking of, of, of different ways of approaching this. A lot of work I've been doing this year, specifically around culture change, has been around how do organizations have these really tough conversations around um, specifically racial and ethnic diversity, not only here in the UK, but in Europe, North America, South America, South and East Asia. And I love the conversations there because you're, you're starting to learn so much about the experiences, the labels, the history behind why so many people have not been as trusting of others from different racial and different ethnic groups. And the majority of individuals who I know who are in right, what I call right brain industries like finance and technology, they'll go, right, okay, so thank you for coming in and telling us X, Y, and Z. We need to know what's the solution that we can have in three to six months time. And I'm like, you actually need to start asking some questions first. This isn't a Q3, Q4 thing where you can just tick off a couple of KPIs and OKRs and everything will be fine. You have to start thinking about how you can explore it. Whereas others who are a bit more organic and who really don't make the decisions, you have to kind of like tie them down to go, okay, what is it you're really wanting to achieve? What are those outcomes once you've kind of like gone in the ethereal space and started thinking a bit more? What is it you want to do? So for me, I think it depends on the actual, the, the group or the client base that you're actually working with or user group to explore that. Some people need that concrete direction, which will get them to that point where they can start saying, right, we've done this and we can tick that box. And rather than just going off in the ethereal space and thinking too randomly, others are so fixed on the destination that they don't give them opportunities to think outside the box. So I think it definitely depends on who it is and, and a combination or, or, or either or works really well depending on the audience. Which then brings us to yet another unsung um, superpower. Yes. Listening. Oh. We've touched on questioning. Yes. And I think if you want better answers, you must ask better questions yes and you must be willing to get the answers even when you would rather not the answers you get were not the ones that you do get but listening I think listening is a massively underdeveloped I mean we all can do it to a degree but it's a massively underdeveloped skill particularly in leaders and managers why is it that in this day and age when we know the power of listening where people feel valued, feel understood, that it's still something that just doesn't happen anywhere near as often as it should. Well, again, you know, my mom says you do the maths and you will always find out that you've got two ears and one mouth and for a reason. There's always, there's always the opportunity for you to be able to speak truth and speak better when you listen better. And I think that there are, because people just group listening as one. Like for me, you know, there's listening to learn or what we call informational listening, where you kind of just gathering all that information. There is the kind of more what I call the critical listening, where you're listening to kind of like evaluate and analyze stuff to kind of like help you towards 
your actual thinking. But then there's also the empathetic kind of thinking or the therapeutic or empathetic listening that people need to have. Uh, and you, know, you could add to that active listening in all different forms. But those three for me are really important. That first one, I'll be listening to learn so we can just hear where people are coming from. The second one, I'll be listening to kind of like evaluate and analyze, which has really helps us around our decision-making and our problem solving. And then the last one is around that empathetic listening. Can we just actually hear that person in front of us? And although we may not share the same experience, let's just listen to where they're coming from. And often there are people who may probably just sit in one or none of those camps. So for example, if somebody's a real critical listener, so they're just going, okay, so tell me about this experience that you have. And they're only listening not to go, I really want to hear where you're coming from and hear what your struggles may be. They're going, okay, I'm listening because I'm going to fix it. Or you even get the, the other one where people are listening to compare. So, you know, we've had these conversations where, you know, we said this year for a number of organizations that never really considered race and ethnicity, people have come in and they've tried to have these conversations and somebody will dismiss them because they will go, well, I understand what you're talking about, but I have the same problem because of my class. It's not oppression Olympics. It's not to be, <laughs> It's, it's not to see who's come from the most challenging background. What we're saying is that, the yes, your experience coming from class may be very different, but how you may experience the world as a white working class male may be very different from the way that a middle class black woman experiences it. And I think it's important to be able to appreciate that difference rather than lumping them in as one. And so the challenge, I guess, more than anything else, is getting people to understand that when you are listening, you're listening with intent to gather that information, but also to be able to make sure that the person in front of you feels that their experience and their background has been fully appreciated rather than just dismissed. Mark Goulston, who is the author of the book that I recommend to everyone I meet, just listen, yeah. says all human beings want to be heard, yeah. feel felt and be understood. And I think Listening is the transfer of meaning. Yeah. And yeah. The, the challenge here is that many people, certainly in my profession in sales, many people listen for a gap so that they can make, uh, fill the sound with the silence with the sound of their own voice and to make their point. And a really simple skill, which again, I, I'm frustrated that uh, not that more people don't do is to actually listen to the end of when someone else is speaking yeah. and then pause. And that pause invites further conversation from the other person, but it also gives you time to compile your next question and to reflect that you have understood. Because I think part of a really important skill in listening is reflecting back to the other person's satisfaction that you have understood what they intended you to hear. And what still disappoints me is how often people don't bother to pay attention. Yeah. Attention is a currency. Yes. Pay attention. Yes. And listening is a great gift because when people feel heard, when they feel understood, they also feel valued. They feel appreciated. Mm. And that is where you start to build trust. Yeah. It's yeah. foundational. Yes. And you know, to come right back to where we started, leadership is about creating the conditions for trust to exist. Yes. So help me understand this. What are the questions that leaders should be asking, but they aren't? How are you? 
That's a fabulous question. How are you, really? Not just I'm fine, but how are you? What can I do to help you do a better job? And what do you need me to do to help you to do better? And what can we do better? Love those questions. Love Beautiful those. questions. And again, I, I think this really comes back to uh, something else that I think is critically important. Leaders are there to serve. You know, yes. We said right at the beginning, your job as a leader is to help other people meet their potential. And if you study flow, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi you know, talks about uh, great leaders, great managers, negotiating goals with their people that are out of reach, but not beyond their grasp. And so, um, you know, he talks about, you know, maybe being 7% beyond where the person believes they can achieve. So it's a stretch goal. And that puts people into flow, which is, again, another really interesting quality of great leaders. Because I think managers have five functions, hire the best people, get the best out of them, and make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, help clear roadblocks and protect them from activities from above and manage inclusively. But that third one, uh, sorry, the the second one of making sure that they uh, can do their best work every day. I think that is really about helping challenge people. And there's a a wonderful uh, quote by David Peterson. Mm -hmm. There's no learning in the comfort zone and there's no comfort in the learning zone. And you've got to stretch The the day you turn up to work where you don't feel like it's been a bit of a stretch and you walk away without having learned something, that's a day wasted. I think creating that culture, you've talked about values as well. David Hensel runs five multi-million dollar companies Mm -hmm. concurrently. And he he taught me one thing which I thought was brilliant, which is every decision is filtered through the values. And if it fits with the values, we consider it. If it doesn't, it's rejected immediately. Yes, yes. So, again, one of the critical values, I believe, is that we stretch ourselves Mm. every day. You shouldn't ever turn up to work or leave work having been comfortable. But, again, maybe that's just me being slightly warped. Oh, no, I I love it. I think it's one of the things I, I think and truly believe when I'm coaching. I say to my clients, I said, I need you to understand that your comfort zone is there to provide you with a sense of safety and to provide you with a sense of belonging and routine that you are used to. That is what our, our brains, you know, when we, when we are operating in, on, in a, on a subconscious level, that comfort zone is there. I said, but when you step outside of your comfort zone, you have to start to think differently because you're not just surviving as you would normally. You have to thrive because when you get into that discomfort, you've got to be able to find a way to be able to manage in there. So I love that concept of being able to, that, that great quote of learning, no, no learning in the comfort zone and no comfort in the learning zone. I absolutely love that because it really does speak to, if you're going to take on the responsibility of taking other people on a journey with you, you have to be vulnerable, you have to be strong, but you've also got to lead by example. And I think of the word discipline. I'm led to believe, I used to do theology many years ago for my sins, which sounds funny the way that I said that, but I'll stick, I'll stick, I'll stick with that anyway. And one of the things I really loved about studying books like the Bible was when you were able to take Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek and really break down words which didn't really translate into English just as easily. And one of the the root words for disciple uh, and the the coin Greek that shapes the word um, disciple is to lead by example. 
So when you hear about discipline and when you talk about disciplined staff, they can only be that way if you're leading by example. As a parent, if you want to discipline your child, you have to be able to lead by examples. If you do something and you're hypocritical to your child, you haven't really disciplined your child. You've just been a bully, all right? Because you haven't been able to lead by example. <laughs> and so I, I'm fascinated by the way that whole kind of concept around discipline and being a disciple and that sense of leadership impacts not just our work. Because here's, here's the thing for me. If you really want to be congruent, and I love what you were saying about flow, and I've been studying a lot of stuff around leadership and flow as well. But if you really want to recognize the strength of and the consistency, and, and, and to my point I was making about Embrave, the ethical, sustainable leadership, is that you can't really chop yourself up into these little bits that are going to shut down when you get to work and all of a sudden re-emerge when you get back out into the wider world. Yes, you're going to be focusing on something else, but you're still the same person. And very often the way you treat yourself and those around you outside of work should be a reflection of what actually happens in work as well. And if there's a dis, if there is a if, Yes, if there's dissonance between the two, stress, burnout, anxiety, you see all those things manifest in the actual body. And for me, that leadership piece is, again, it's, it's about self-discipline first before you can get others to be disciplined to follow you. And so for me, those things are, yeah, they are they are quite congruent. And, and, and I love that. You've got that phrase in my head now. I'm going to flip and quote it after once we finish it. I'm going to copy and paste it and stick it in my, my notepad. But I really love that. Really love that. Well, the- that piece around self-love, I think, is really important as well, because far too often people are, they run this negative voice in their head. And uh, the net result of that is that they spend their time diminishing themselves. Yes. And I'm always minded of that Marianne Williamson quote, which uh, Nelson Mandela used uh, when he was freed, which is about, you know, it, it's not uh, our weakness or whatever but it's um our greatness that we hide and you do no one a service by doing that you do everyone a disservice around you my old uh, business in sandler one of the things that i think was really fabulous and really made that methodology stand out was something called ir theory your identity versus your role yes. your identity is who you are and yep. your role is all the things that you do. And uh, what was really interesting about that was conceptually, you will only perform to the level that mm. your self-concept will allow. Wow. And so if you don't understand you have rights, mm. if you don't like yourself, if you don't respect yourself, then you will project out yeah. others and then get reflected back what you've projected out. Mm. And this is why... Uh, often you see leaders who are persecutors, yes. who are rescuers, who are victims. And so they operate in this terrible place, the drama triangle, which is essentially fueled by ego. And my favorite philosopher, Bruce Lee, was asked uh, one day, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. Yes. Now, the somewhere else is the winner's triangle, where you are vulnerable which requires enormous courage. In fact, uh, vulnerable comes from the Latin word vulnerabilis, which means to put yourself in harm's way, to make yourself woundable and mm. do it anyway, to be nurturing and empathic, and also to be assertive. Yes. So you can operate from this position of being both adult and nurturing parent and curious, but very few people can live like that because uh, wherever you look, 
we're surrounded by this drama triangle. Everything that you see on TV, the last four years, the last six years on the news has been nothing but drama triangle. Yes. Victims, persecutors, rescuers, you know, helping without boundaries or permission, yeah. uh, being mollycoddling, permissive, yeah. uh, being punitive, being judgmental, blaming. And all, all of this is the meat and grist of our media. It's uh, all of our entertainment. And I think it's really dangerous where we are not able to look in the mirror and like the person mm. who's looking back at us for who they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me this. What, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with, Dave? Right about now, I'm, I'm struggling with the fact that I need to give enough people the space in a world that's constantly changing to come up to speed at their own speed. So in the work that I have been doing this year, specifically working with leaders around just the development and the change and, and a lot of the work around cultural change around ethnicity, gender and, and other protected characteristics, there have been times where I'm like, honestly, dude or do that, you honestly don't get this. This is not rocket science. This is just simple ABC. And I've really had to quieten the noise in my head to say, David, took you a number of years to realize some of the stuff that you did. So you need to give other people a chance. And you need to give other people the patience to be able to get to that space where they find it, where the penny drops for themselves. Some will get there quickly. Others will, um, uh, will get there slowly. But I guess because in, in a, there's a heightened awareness and anxiety of things needing to be done and needing to be addressed, the thing that I struggle with is making sure that I quieten the noise and I have to... I've had to develop techniques to walk away from situations or extricate myself from pieces of work so I can quieten that noise and treat the individuals who I'm talking to, whether I'm coaching, whether I'm facilitating, whether I'm doing stuff around research, making sure that I come to that and limiting the amount of biases that I have. But I'll be honest with you, that is such a struggle and, and constantly <laughs> having to check in with my own advisory board. I have my own people that I just go, look, just tell me, am I going wrong here? Am I going mad? And talking with them and coach and therapist and all the rest of it, just to make sure that it's not just all happening in my head. I can talk it out and talk with individuals. And, and it's a struggle. And I, and I believe, had you asked me that question in June, I, I, I wouldn't have called it a struggle. I would just said, look, I was just cleaning that camp. I was like, bloody well, can you sort your life out? Let's hurry this along. Um, but more towards the end of the year, having a lot more conversations and, and taking a step back, it's allowed me to be a lot more patient and a lot more understanding and always exploring or encouraging others to do the same so we can keep each other accountable. When did you realize you were enough and you could forgive yourself? It was just after my 40th birthday. What happened? So I grew up in a very, what I would call a strict, fundamental Christian background with my parents. And it was very, to the letter, it was quite restrictive. Not restrictive, I mean, it was loving. Don't get me wrong, my parents absolutely loving, absolutely love all, all they have done for me. But there were, there were limitations on their thinking, which I think was limited by their experience. And even though my dad really encouraged me to read and read really widely, I think he read widely, but within the context of the framework that he thought. <laughs> so, you know, like he, he's the kind of, he's the guy, he's reading widely. Let me go to the Vatican Library. And I'm like, no, let me go to all the libraries. Thank you very much. <laughs> and so just before I turned 40, I had made a decision and I spoke with my family uh, my wife and my daughters. And I said, you know, at the time, my daughter was a lot younger and, my, and, and obviously with my wife, we'd been married for just over 10 years then. 
And I said, I, I can no longer define myself as religious. I said, I've read too much. And I feel that in terms of the spiritual experiences that I've had, not only as a Christian, but the things that I've learned from Buddhism, the things that I've learned from Sufism, the things that I've learned from so many other things have allowed me to stop thinking that I need to be guilty and carrying myself guiltily. And not Catholic by any chance. Say again? Not Catholic by any chance. No, no, no. I was, <laughs> well, to be, to be fair, the variation of the Protestant religion that I came from, which is called Seventh-day Adventist, they are, in some ways, they're quite legalistic and similar in some of the approaches. <laughs> so it was, there was a freedom to be able to kind of, you know, and again, I think for, it, it serves and it works for a lot of other people. But for me, I needed to have that sense of freedom where somebody wasn't telling me what I had to do. And I guess that point about 4041 was where I realized, you know, historically I had been in a position of influence and power to speak to youth groups, to speak to churches, to speak in community groups. And a lot of that was driven by this restricted view around community, around sexuality, around fairness and what have you. It was a couch in this stuff. And I, and I apologize to myself, first and foremost, for all the things that I had said and the, the prejudices that I had carried around race, around gender, around um, sexuality. And I, would, I just decided that day to make a decision and just free myself and forgive myself and work on any of the other conversations that I needed to have that, you know, in, in being able to be a bit more free. But yeah, from about 41, that's when I just did, something just went off and I was like, right, I'm not carrying no guilt, I'm not doing it. I'm not living in any regret and I'm moving forward. That's fantastic. Yeah, and um, have a listen out for an interview that I'm releasing in a week or two. Yes. Uh, with a guy called Michael Brody Waite. Michael has uh, created two Inc. 500 businesses mm -hmm. after having been uh, a drug addict, and he got clean in 2002. Yeah. And his experience of letting go of that addiction and forgiving himself yes. and bringing in the 12 steps to his businesses and in particular, four masks around not hiding your light under a bushel, radical honesty, and various others. I think you'll really enjoy it. I'll, I'll connect the two of you because I yeah. think you have a huge amount in common, but coming at it from such interesting, diverse backgrounds. Uh, I've got him and Mark Galston and Todd Capone coming onto a round table fairly soon. I think I'll drag you onto another one. Okay. Um, because that will just lead to some fascinating conversation. This has been really incredible. Tell me, what are the books, audios, uh, podcasts, videos that you would recommend people watch to help them make that transition, maybe uh, to forgive themselves or to have the courage to take the risk to be uncomfortable and to lead yeah. better? One book that I always recommend to the individuals that I mentor is The, the Magic of Thinking Big right. by David Schwartz. I love that book in that it, I think it's, it's eye-opening into what we can actually achieve. You know, you're not limited by your background, your culture, your community, which, you know, I think the limitation is often in there to protect us, but being able to look outside that and see outside that has been absolutely powerful. Another one of the books that I really like is in Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. One of my, it's one of my favorite books around resilience. I think I need to probably extend my, uh, the, the, the library around that kind of topic, but it's one that I really, really do love. And I think it's, uh, you know, there are some people who are, are challenged by it, but I really love it as a book for, for, for myself about that resilience and being able to 
to go forward. Interestingly enough, and even though I'm no longer religious, one of my favorite books is still or the 66 books of the Bible. I still really love the cadence of like the 1611 authorized version, the King James version, as they call it. I love the cadence of it because it's, it's, it embodies all that poetic um, symbolism of, say, Hebrew culture and um, and and then and then the Aramaic culture in the New Testament. I love all that stuff. And you know, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Although, again, as I said, I'm not religious in any way. I love that kind of thing. That being blessed because you are peaceful, being blessed because you are merciful. All that stuff can be applied to you as an individual without you having to think I'm going to be totally religious. So again, I would say. Oh, if you're going to read it as just as a piece of literature rather than a thing that's going to make you feel guilty and you know beat yourself with stripes or what have you. It's a book that I really love. And um, I'm trying to remember the name of the book now. It's gone from me. It'll come back to me, but it was a, it was a, book, a book around Buddhism. Oh, it's gone. It's absolutely gone now. Um, but it's again, it's really powerful about having that sense of peace, having that sense of inner peace. And you know, the, sometimes people say to me, David, how why is it so often you seem so happy? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I would say that I'm more content than I am happy because happiness is an emotion that's fleeting, but content for me is a lifestyle. It's about being able to be content with what I have and not necessarily having to kind of like express myself through some outward acquisition or something that I have. I'm, I'm, a, bigger fe- I'm a bigger fan of being content than necessarily being happy. And I think, you know, the, the individuals, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for people who are always happy, but I do believe that there's a range of emotions that keep us in check and that keep us balanced. You know, you can't go to a funeral laughing when somebody's really close to you and has died, or if you do, I think you've got a couple of issues. But, you know, just the, those tend to be some of the ones and the resources that I have. In terms of podcasts, I listen to so many, I couldn't even think of one. Obviously yours. Okay, we go. We'll put you up there so we have to play. <laughs> you can come. Um, I will say one of the ones that has been a real a powerful one for me, and I, I listen to it religiously, it's called The Knowledge Project. And it's, I'm trying to remember the name, Farnham Street. It's the Farnham Street. Yeah, Farnham Street. Farnham.blog. Yeah, um, yeah, Farnham or FS.blog or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and it's F-A-R-N-A-M. Yes. And they are, so, yeah. so yeah, The Knowledge Project is absolutely fabulous because, you know, a lot of these individuals who are looking at life from a, both a business and a personal perspective, around your whole well-being so spiritual intellectual you know to to be fair I, I at some point in my life I think I want to go and do my own podcast doing that but I'm, my, my mind's taken elsewhere at the moment but just the fascination of being able to talk to people from different forms of life to just talk about the wholeness of who we are as humans that that is one podcast that I listen to religiously well uh, a couple that I would strongly recommend Peter Block's The Right Use of Power it's okay. only available on audio, but it's a fabulous book. I would also suggest Ego is the Enemy. Ego is the Enemy. Read that one, yeah. Uh, the Ryan, obstacle, Ryan, what's his name, right? Ryan Holiday. Yeah. Uh, the Obstacle is the Way and yeah. Stillness is the Key. And those three work in conjunction with one another. Yeah. Um, and it's all about bringing Stoicism, making it accessible to us today. Because uh, if you read the Stoics in their original, they are a little bit tough to read. And uh, his Daily Stoic feed is really interesting as well. Excellent. Okay, so Dave, you've got a golden ticket Mm -hmm. and you can advise the idiot Dave, age 23. Mm -hmm. What one choice bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have probably ignored but would have benefited from? I'll start with don't be an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) No chance. (laughs) (laughs) No no chance. I mean, I've been looking at a 22-year-old Dave looking at who the hell are you anyway? Cut yourself some slack. Cut yourself some slack and just be present. That's what I would definitely say. 
think I spent a large part of my formative adulthood just not being present, always looking forward. All right, when am I going to get married? When am I going to have children? When am I going to have a house? When am I going to do the business? When am I going to get these qualifications? And and I would, as I have done for a number of years to my own children and to, to other young people, just say, just be present. Be really focused on living the 24 hours that you have to the fullness that you can whenever you can and be present and don't, don't sweat it. You'll be okay. You'll be okay. That would be my ticket. Excellent. So how can people get hold of you? So davidmcqueen.co.uk is my main site. And the two places I'm most active are either on that site or on LinkedIn. So on LinkedIn, my kind of hashtag after the LinkedIn.in or whatever is Mr. David McQueen. And yeah, that's where people can get hold of me. I'm I'm trying to use the name Mr. David McQueen because I'm trying to give myself some regal authority out there. (laughs) (laughs) It's going back to being born in St. Mary's Hospital, isn't it? Right, there you go, right? I'm trying trying to get more to But yeah, David McQueen, uh, davidmcqueen.co.uk was the main site or Mr. David McQueen on LinkedIn is where most people can find it. David McQueen, thank you. Thank you very much, Marcus. I really appreciate this. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, inspiring, challenging, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to get in touch with me or to uh, arrange a one-to-one, then email me at marcus at laughs-last.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. Stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.